The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. To see how your church was built and to see how we are connected to this church, how we are the extension of this church. And so, God, pray that as we dive into this story, may we be reminded that this is our story. This is our history because we are your church. And so God bless us as we study your word this semester and study it today. May we not only learn it in our heads, but apply it to our hearts and practice it with our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ethan Anthony Couch may be a name that is familiar to some of you. Ethan grew up a very privileged young man. He had lots of resources, lots of wealth, but also a lot of dysfunction. To give you just a few examples, at the age of 13, Ethan was given permission by his parents to start driving to school. When the principal raised uh, some doubt about this decision, his father threatened to buy the school. How cool is that? At the age of 15, you can see that this this great abundance of wealth continued to drive him to some really poor decisions. He was caught under the influence in a pickup truck with a passed out 14-year-old girl next to him. And then most tragically, the thing that he is most known for that maybe you have heard of is on June 15, 2013, while driving both both high and drunk. He was going over the speed limit and crashed and four people perished. The reason why this case became so public across America was because of the sentence given to him. He was simply given 10 years of probation and ordered to have therapy. And the reason for this was because his attorney argued that the teen had something that has been called affluenza. How many of you have heard of affluenza? Okay. It's something I had not heard of previous to this year, but what affluenza is, is basically it is the inability of a highly privileged person to engage the world around them, to understand the people around them. And so some symptoms of this are feelings of guilt, lack of motivation, a social isolation from those around them. Really, it's an inability to understand how their actions affect those that are outside of their immediate circle and immediate life. And really, the recommended treatment, there are many, but it is all summarized in this, which is stop focusing on yourself. <laughs> Late in 2015, the drama continued. Couch kind of skipped his probation officer. When they couldn't find him, there was this national manhunt. And they finally found him, and he was with his mom at a resort in Mexico. And, of course, it was also chalked up to this condition of affluenza. Now, we may look at this story and shake our heads, but I think there is something that happens in a church that is called a spiritual affluenza. I know this comes and goes in my own lives, but we get caught up in this little bubble where we are so busy enjoying the blessings of God and the riches of God that really we become unaware of the people that we walk by in everyday life. We get caught up in these 
Christian bubbles to a certain degree. Maybe you work with Christians, you live with Christians, you spend free time with Christians, you go to Christian schools, Christian camps, Christian amusement parks, you use Christian toothpaste and Christian dental floss, you have all of these Christian things around you and you get caught in this bubble. And while none of these things are wrong, except maybe the the dental floss, while none of these things are a wrong thing or a bad thing, you get caught in this bubble and you start suffering from spiritual affluenza because you surround yourself with all the good and great blessings of God, but become wholly unaware of the people around you that do not know him and that are perishing. We enjoy the blessings of God. And we stop living out the mission of God. And like affluenza, this spiritual condition is often described as a lack of motivation, social isolation from those who have a different worldview. And the recommended treatment in many ways is to simply stop focusing on yourself. To be brutally honest, I think this is a condition that even our church has gravitated into. I know when we first planted Jacobswell Church, we had these things called stepping stones in which we tried to connect our unchurched friends to the church and through those relationships, try to get them to hear the good news of Jesus. And as it's continued to go on, as the church has gotten bigger, these stepping stones have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where we no longer have them. Now, there may be other reasons for that, But I wonder if there is something going on in our church where we have reached a cruising altitude, where we have reached a level of comfort, and we have become so involved inside the walls of the church that we no longer have time or concern for those outside the walls of the church. I'm so glad we're going through the book of Acts. I am so excited about this. Originally, I was going to go through Nehemiah, which is about rebuilding the walls. But the elders said, you know what? We have this, this, this impression that God wants to focus us on growing our missional climate of our church. And so let's do something more in line with that. And so what we did is we switched to the book of Acts. And the Acts is an amazing series. And my hope for this series is that God, through his word, would discomfort us. I know many times we think discomfort is a negative thing, but sometimes it is a very positive thing. And my hope is that God would help me and help you and help us collectively to get beyond the walls of our church and look more outside the walls of the church with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you look at the series slide here, you see that the tagline is our story, our church, our mission. And the reason why those are there is because This is the story of the church. This is the story of us. This is where we began. This is where the mission of the church began. And so we look at this and we look at mothers and fathers in the faith. And we see that the promises given to them is given to us. And we see the mission given to them is given to us. So if you would please open up to Acts chapter 1 is page 1177 in the Children's Bible and page 909 in the Red Bible. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Just to give you a little bit of the setting of the book of Acts, uh, it is written by a Gentile, which means non-Jewish person, a Gentile convert to Christianity. His name is Luke. Uh, Luke probably became a Christian during Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, 
and he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Uh, he probably wrote them at the same time, but they're different books because the parchments that they wrote on were only a certain length, and he probably could not fit both on to, on a one parchment. And so you have uh, the Gospel of Luke and then the sequel, the, the Acts of the Apostles. And in the Gospel of Luke, he records the life of Jesus Christ. And then in the book of Acts, he records the explosion of the church of Jesus Christ. In the opening verses, he addresses Theophilus. Now, there's two major views of who Theophilus is. Theophilus may be a wealthy person who has supported the ministry of Luke to allow him to write these things. But the word Theophilus also means lover of God. And so it might also be that Luke is simply writing this to the church to let the church know that they are to continue the mission that God has given to the original church. And so Jesus calls us through his word today to continue the family business, to continue the business of the church with the good news of the gospel. So let's read together Acts 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when, when he was taken up after he has given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As a church, we are faced with this critical question. How do we raise the missional climate of our church? Not just through programs and through trinkets and promotions, but how do we individually and collectively reprioritize the mission of God in our life? And today we will see three very clear things. One is that we must love our message. The second is we must live out our mission. And the third is that we must leverage our might. And so we will go through those three things. First, we must love our message. To put it very simply, the message of the church is Jesus, okay? The message of the church 
is Jesus. Jesus was there at the beginning. Jesus will be there at the end. And Luke actually, in these short 11 verses, records most of the work of Jesus, or at least refers to in some way, shape, or form. So I want to quickly walk through them. There's seven subpoints. I think this is a record for me, but I want to quickly walk through who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, the story of Jesus. And I greatly enjoyed putting this together. The first one is actually the only one that is not referred to by Luke. And it's Jesus' creation. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, meaning preeminent over all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. And so what it means is that Jesus, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian God, created everything you can see and everything that you can't see. It was all created by him. And then Colossians goes on to say, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so not only did he create all things, but he is sustaining all things at this point in time, right now, today. There is a reason why we have not gone off orbit as the as the circulation of the earth. There's a reason why planets are not colliding into one another. There's a reason why you have air to breathe. There's a reason why the rain comes and the grass grows. It is because Jesus is sustaining everything that he created. And so there is Jesus creation. And then there is Jesus incarnation. In verse one, he says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas time. That Jesus, the creator, was then created in the womb of a woman whom he created. That God actually became a person, became a man. I mean, I know we get used to this, but, but, but God became like us. And he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And for three years, taught about the glorious kingdom of God and displayed it as he reconciled sinners to God, as he healed the blind and the lame and raised the dead. He was showing forth the kingdom of God and preaching the kingdom of God. And then we get to Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 3 very subtly remarks that Jesus suffered. You see, Jesus not only lived the life that we should have lived, But Jesus died the death that we should have died. In other words, Jesus was born to die. He lived in order to be crucified. At the cross, Christ took upon himself the sins of his people. At the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God, the justice of God, the hell of God for the people of God. But the story cannot end there. Then we have Jesus' resurrection in verse 3. Luke writes, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I listened to this sports talk show that I love, and they have this saying that they always keep talking about as athletes get older. They keep saying, you know what? Father time is undefeated. That's true in every case except for Jesus. Because Jesus died, but Jesus also rose again. You see, if he died for our sin, that would not be enough because we would still be dead in our sin. But he rose to give us newness of life. 
Jesus overwhelmingly proved his bodily resurrection, appearing for 40 days to many skeptics like Thomas and the disciples and others. At one point, he appeared to 500 at one time. And the Apostle Paul says, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They'll tell you that he was alive, that he is alive, that he was raised from the dead. The resurrection was so certain that even non-Christian historians recorded the resurrection of Jesus as historical fact. And the 12 disciples were, way, were willing to lay down their life in order to defend that very truth. The story continues. Jesus' ascension. Verse 2, he says, The day when Jesus was taken up, and then verse 9, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of the disciples' sight. Again, this happens 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. One commentator points out that this was probably the cloud, the Shekinah glory that filled the temple, the kind that that surrounded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the point is, is that Jesus did not die again, that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus ascended into heaven, not to retire, but to reign. And that takes us to Jesus' session. This word session is a noun meaning sitting. We confess this in the Apostles' Creed. We really confess all of these in the Apostles' Creed. But we say that Jesus ascended into heaven and that he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, what does it mean that he is sitting? It does not mean that his work is done. It means that he is king. It's so interesting. I never noticed this before, but it's it's really fascinating. Once you see it, it just kind of jumps out. In verse 1, He says this in talking about the Gospels and writing about from Jesus' birth to his ascension. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Why does he refer to the time before Jesus' ascension as just the beginning? Well, it's because Jesus' earthly ministry was only starting. You see, Jesus is still active as king, ruling and reigning over the world, saving and teaching people through his Holy Spirit. Finally, we get to Jesus' consummation, verse 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you, look, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word consummate means to complete or to finalize. You see, while the kingdom of God had begun, as Christ pushed back the effects of the fall, as he healed the blind and the lame, as he calmed the storm, as he reconciled people to God, we know that there is still sickness and disease and death in this world. We know that there is still sin and selfishness and sadness. But when Christ comes again and he is coming again, he will make all the sad things come untrue. He will consummate or he will complete the redemption of his kingdom. Revelation 21 tells us it this way. It says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Who's looking forward to the consummation? I know I am. Church, this is our message. Our message is a person. Our message is is Jesus. Jesus who created the incarnation, 
the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the session, and the future consummation. And this message is not just a bunch of information, but this is a person worthy of our declaration. Some of you here may know Drew and Laura Scruce. They attended here frequently when they're in town. They're both teachers, so they come up here in the summer a lot. Uh, I was good friends with Drew when he was in college. I had the privilege of officiating their wedding. This last Sunday at 11.30 p.m., I received a text from Drew with a picture. It was a picture of he and his wife and their brand-new baby girl. And he, and, and, and he said uh, he listed out the weight, length, time of birth, and things like that and was praising God. The very next day at 12.04 p.m., I get an email from Dan Conard, Grandpa, with another picture of the baby with the words, God has blessed our family beyond words. And then Monday at 4.31 p.m., I get a text from Grandma with two more pictures. And she says, dark hair, long eyelashes, she's perfect. Mom and baby are doing well, and Dad is proud of his girls. Now, why all of these texts and emails within 24 hours? Because they had a message to share. And that message was not just information. That message was a person. It was a baby girl, a first child, a new grandchild. Praise God, their message was a person and they loved their message and they wanted to share it. Friends, so many times people try to tell us that all religions have the same message, but the message of of Christianity is so extremely distinct to every other religion. You see, in every other religion, you can go to the grave of the person who founded the religion. Baha'i, you can go in Israel, and there's a grave there. Buddhism, the, the, the body was cremated, and then ashes spread throughout various monuments. Confucius, he's buried in his hometown of Khufu. Islam, Muhammad is buried in al-Masjid. Judaism, Abraham, buried in the case of Maklapah. Mormonism, Joseph Smith is buried in Illinois somewhere, which is just strange. But <laughs> that right there should tell you it's not a good religion if someone's buried in Illinois. <laughs> You see, for every other religion, there's no problem that their founder is dead. That's no problem for them at all because their message is simply centered around concepts and ideas and philosophies. And so while in Christianity there certainly are concepts and ideas and philosophies, our primary message is not concepts and ideas and philosophies. Our primary message is a living Lord who is reigning and ruling and coming back to redeem all things. Isn't that a better message? We have an amazing message to share. Our message is the most beautiful person to ever walk the earth. And the most beautiful person who is reigning the earth. And the most beautiful person who is coming back to make all the sad things come untrue. That is the message that we are called to love. Secondly, we are called to live our mission. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they, the disciples, asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Let's pause there. The disciples are stoked, all right? Their leader, Jesus, their, their rabbi, their Messiah, was dead, and now he's alive, okay? So that's pretty exciting. You're, the guy you're, that you're following can actually 
beat death, right? That's a pretty exciting thing. So they're excited. And so throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, over about 100 times, he mentions the kingdom of God. We talked about it a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, but he's always talking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And then during his resurrection, during while he's ministering for 40 days before his ascension, he continues to teach about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And so now they're sitting there going, okay, Jesus, it's now go time. It's now the time it's going to happen. Are we going to have the kingdom of God? We are so excited. Let's go do this. And what we see is they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This seems to be the disciples' final plea for a political kingdom. They were hoping that Jesus, the greater David, would overthrow the Romans and restore a physical kingdom in the land of Israel while they would ride on his coattails and be his leaders. And so they're pleading for it. They're asking for it. They're demanding it. Jesus is the kingdom coming now. But what we see is that Jesus did not come to establish a political kingdom, but Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom. Now, when I first read that in the commentary, I'm thinking that that kind of seems weak, a spiritual kingdom, like an invisible kingdom. It's kind of like, you know, that lonely child who has an invisible friend, right? And you're kind of like a real friend would be better, you know, or, or that guy in my friend house who had that really beautiful girlfriend in Alaska. And you're like, sure, I believe you. You want physical, you want tangible. But you see the invisible spiritual kingdom is the greatest kingdom of all because it can do something that no other kingdom can do. It can actually infiltrate, infiltrate and transform every other kingdom on the face of the earth. You see, because it is spiritual, it is inwardly, it is invisible, it can infiltrate our government. It can infiltrate our schools. It can infiltrate our sports. It can infiltrate our marriages. It can infiltrate our friendships. It can infiltrate our recreation. It can infiltrate every single other kingdom on the face of the earth, and it can transform it from the inside out. You see, the kingdom of Christ is wherever Christ reigns. And so if Christ reigns in your heart, wherever you go, you remember, you are light. Jesus doesn't say be light. He says you are light. And so wherever you go, Christ is reigning through you. He is extending his dominion, his influence, his presence, his love. And so Christ's kingdom is not established politically in the land of Israel through swords and spears, but it is established spiritually in the hearts of men and women and children through the mission of the church. And so let's look again here. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, he doesn't really answer their question. He does that a lot. He He answers the question they should have been asking. Verse seven, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. And then here, listen closely to verse eight, because verse eight is the summary of the entire book of Acts. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem. That's recorded in Acts chapter one through seven. And in Judea and Samaria, which is recorded in Acts chapters 8 through 12, and to the ends of the earth, which is recorded in Acts chapter 13 through 28. And so what we see here is that the disciples' desire for a political kingdom is not too big of a goal. It is too small of a goal. Jesus doesn't just want to transform a little piece of property on planet earth. 
He wants to transform the whole thing. And so they went forth preaching the gospel, this small little bandit of people that followed this relatively unknown Messiah. And they changed the world. As they lived out their mission, the gospel and the kingdom of Christ spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria into the uttermost parts of the earth. But please make no mistake. This did not come easy. It did not come easy at all. It came at great sacrifice to them. They sacrificed money and occupations and friendships and family. They left their family to go and share the good news of Christ with those in other parts of the world. And their witness not only came with great sacrifice, it also came with great persecution. They were beaten. They were thrown out of cities. They were even martyred. And yet they pressed on regardless of the opposition, living out their mission, preaching the message that they loved, preaching about Jesus. Because their mission and their message was greater than the sacrifice and suffering. You know, one of the big storylines of the new NFL season is something that is actually happening before kickoff. You may know what I'm talking about. Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, has decided to raise awareness or protest of social injustice in our world, of racism in our world. And in order to do that, he has been taking a knee during the national anthem. Now, the response to his actions are various. Some applaud him for raising awareness, but others criticize him for his lack of patriotism. Some have distanced themselves from him, while others have joined him in promoting that message. One who has joined his cause is Denver Broncos linebacker Brandon Marshall, who took a knee during the first game of the NFL season. And as a result of taking a knee, he lost two endorsements. See, whenever you have a message, whenever you take a stand, whenever you try to promote promote something that is unpopular, there will always be sacrifice. There will always be persecution. There will always be suffering. And so the question is, is the message and the mission worth it? Is it worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is the kingdom worth it? Is the people that you are sharing it with worth it? If our message, Jesus, is the greatest message that the world has ever known, wouldn't it make sense that we would go through anything to continue to propagate it throughout all the broken pieces of this world? Now, please, I don't want you to hear me say, be a jerk and you're going to get persecuted. If if you're a jerk, you deserve persecution. We're called to do it with gentleness and love and respect, but the good news of the gospel is offensive to many. And there are many who may turn away from you, many who will not want to hang out with you as much. But friends, it is time for us to maybe stop making family the top priority in our life. Maybe it's time to quit making job the top priority in our life. Maybe it's time to stop making recreation the top priority of life. Maybe it's time to kill spiritual affluenza by making Christ and his mission, his mission the top priority in our life. This may mean having less meals with friends and more meals with strangers. It may mean focusing less on sports and focusing more on the people at the sporting programs. This may mean getting less done around your house and getting more done in your neighborhood. But you see, we have been called to a great message and a great mission. And God is trying to break us free 
of our spiritual affluenza and to explode outwards with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we must love our message, Jesus. We must live out our mission of sharing Jesus, regardless of sacrifice or persecution. But finally, we must leverage our might. You know, I know there are some of you here who love the message of Jesus so deeply and so profoundly. And you, in the depth of your heart, believe that it is our mission to go out and share it with those around us. But that's where the train stops for you. There is this block that keeps you from going forward and sharing the good news of Christ. And I can identify with all of these. Maybe you are paralyzed by fear of rejection. Maybe are you distracted by other priorities. Maybe you are overwhelmed by the shame of your own sin. Maybe you feel undermined by feelings of inadequacy. But here is the good news for you and me. God not only gives us a message, and God not only gives us a mission, but God also gives us the might to love the message and to fulfill the mission. Verse 4. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, which is fascinating. Go take the world, stay here. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he has said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Go down to verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power. Remember that word power, we'll come back to it. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about his ascension into heaven. And he says something that is absolutely fascinating, okay? This is what he says. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Like, it's to your advantage that I go away, which, which doesn't seem to make sense. This would be like, sorry for another football illustration, but this would be like a coach who comes and gives this big rah-rah, let's go get the other team, let's go beat them, let's go take over the world. By the way, I'm going home to watch the game. See you later, right? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Why is him leaving better for fulfilling the mission that he has called us to? Well, he continues. He says, for I do not go, for if I do not go away, the helper, talking about the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You know, you may have these thoughts as I do. It would be so great if I could just see Jesus and hug Jesus and talk to Jesus face to face. But you know what is better than that? Jesus going away. Because when Jesus goes away, he is not only near us, he is actually inside of us through his Holy Spirit. And so he's not just near, he's within now, the Holy Spirit has many roles. It regenerates us. It teaches us. It searches us. It convicts us. It intercedes for us. It enlightens us. It transforms us. It assures us. It comforts us. It has many, many roles. But the emphasis throughout the book of Acts is that it gives us power to proclaim, power to share the good news of Christ. 
You know, I talked about that word power earlier. It's the word dynamis, which means dynamite. That's where we, I'm sorry, that's where we get the word dynamite from. And it's used seven times in the book of Acts. And every time this word power is used, it is used referring to the power that the Holy Spirit has given to his church to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I I have this mic here today. We couldn't find the wireless because Chad's gone. And like I said, it's kind of chaotic. But we have this microphone here, and it's a wireless mic. You can see no wires, right? This is like a magic trick. Um, in this microphone, there is, there is, in and of itself, there is no power. Uh, I can't just speak into a microphone and project. But inside this microphone, there is a battery. And that battery has power. And it allows my voice to be amplified. It allows you to hear me. You see, in our witness, what God is telling us is you are a microphone, but Jesus is the battery. The Holy Spirit is the battery that allows your words to be heard by hardened hearts. But we have to leverage that power. You see, the way that I leverage the power of this microphone is by opening my mouth. It's by talking. The way we leverage the power of the Holy Spirit that God has put inside of us is to open our mouth, to share the good news of Christ with those who do not know him. Friends, we have not just received power. We have received divine power. We are called to leverage that power by sharing the good news of Christ with others, by opening our mouth, first talking to God about people in prayer, and then talking to people about God through witnessing. Let me end with a story and an assignment. As many of you know, uh, this past summer, I took a sabbatical, and leading up to it, I had present to the elders what I wanted to study and write on my sabbatical. And sensing that our, our church is reaching a plateau stage, a cruising altitude where things are getting comfortable and we're less focused outside the walls of the church, I asked if I could focus on evangelism. They gave me their blessing, and I went and did that. And, uh, and so I created this evangelism curriculum, honestly, for people who are not comfortable doing evangelism. That's who my target was. Well, this summer, uh, five lucky ladies signed up for my evangelism class, and uh, they were my guinea pigs for this curriculum, which is called The Journey. Uh, two of the ladies did not know it was going to be an evangelism class. Otherwise, they would not have signed up. And I think it's fair to say the other three didn't know I was actually going to make them do evangelism Um, because usually we study evangelism but never do it, right? And so they were kind of like, if I knew that, I wouldn't have signed up either. So I would have been myself, right, which would have been fun. But the class was amazing. It was amazing to see God work through us when we simply were faithful to the mission that he called us to. And it was amazing to see how, as we lived out our mission, we loved our message, Jesus, all the more. As part of this evangelism curriculum, uh, one of the things that you do is you do this thing where you interview people, you have 10 questions, and you just want to get to know their spiritual journey, what they believe, things like that. And you ask these questions, listening to hear, not listening to respond. You're studying them. You're creating a safe place for spiritual conversation in the future. But I would sit down with these people and I would ask these questions. And it's surprising, almost everyone says yes to doing this this survey with us. But I sat down um, with one guy, and I'll just call him Dean. Um, I wanted to videotape some of these so I could share them with you as you go through the curriculum. 
And Dean, um, Dean was a St. Norbert student. Uh, he was uh, from Japan, and he was a foreign exchange student that was here just for three months over the summer. And so I walked up to Dean, as awkward as it was, and I said, hey, Dean, I'm working on this assignment, uh, and I, I'm interviewing people, trying to find out about what they believe and about their spiritual journey. Would you be willing to do this? And he said, sure. And so we started to talk through it, and Dean, like many in Japan, is an atheist. He doesn't believe in anything. Um, but as we went through the survey, it was just so fascinating to see how he was starting to doubt his doubts, how he was questioning the, the previous assumptions that he held. Well, we made it through the, the curriculum, and, and we came out to the, the very last question. The last question is, would you like to go through a four-week study seeing how the Bible tries to answer these big questions? And they're awesome questions. Great discussion. And to my surprise, Dean says, sure, I'll do that. And so we set up a t- I gave him the books, and we set up a time to, to meet and talk through the first book. And, and, and we kind con- we we messaged each other by Facebook to make sure everything was set up, where and when and all those things. And so I show up, and Dean's not there. And five minutes go by, and Dean doesn't show up. And 10 minutes show up, go by, Dean's not there. 15 minutes, and so I'm like, okay, he's probably not coming. I'm working on my computer. Finally, half hour goes by, no Dean. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm just going to leave. And uh, if you really want us to have this conversation, please just bring him across my path as I'm walking to my car. Well, you know what's going to happen, right? So I I leave the cafeteria, and I start walking towards my car, and there's Dean with his friends around him. And I say, Dean, are we still going to meet? And you can tell he was trying to dodge me, poor Dean. And uh, he's like, oh, sure, i got to go get my books. So he went and got his books, and we met about an hour after when we were scheduled to meet, and we started to talk through who Jesus is and the gospel. And, and, And Dean actually asked me, he goes, how do I become a Christian? And so we talked about the uniqueness of Christianity, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the cross of Christ. And I asked Dean, are you ready to trust in Christ? And he said, no, which I'm so glad he was honest. I don't want him to be disingenuous. But as we went through that procession, as we were wrapping up, because I wasn't ever going to see Dean again, he was going back to Japan. I said, Dean, if there's a God, do you think maybe he brought you America to America not to study this summer? but to hear the message about him? And he said, yes, absolutely so. Now, I never saw Dean again, but I know that the Lord who is God over America is also the God over Japan. And what the Lord may have used me to cast seeds, the Lord might use a missionary to water, but ultimately God will make it grow. And so as I have walked forward, uh, you know, you look at me, and you probably say he's a preacher. Evangelism is really easy for him. It's not. It's very difficult for me. It's like when I was in high school asking a girl out on a date. My palms get sweaty. I get scared. I'm freaked out. I can't sleep. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe not. But, but as, as I sought, Lord, God, just help me to be faithful, to fulfill the mission that you have called me to. I've gotten to take three different people through these book series, and, and all three of them have professed faith in Christ. Now, I don't expect that to happen every time. The book material actually is okay. It's not that great. But you see, it's the power of the Holy Spirit at the work, at, at work inside the hearts of men and women to bring them to faith in Christ. And so here's my assignment for you. I, we had a, community, a small group leader meeting earlier this year, and I told the small group leaders, hey, I have this curriculum that I created for you to do in small groups. Um, and so 
share with your group and decide a time that you might want to do it. Now, small group leaders are busy and distracted and things happen. And so I want you to help encourage your group to decide a time to do this. Now, it may not be this semester. It might be next semester, whatever it might be. But decide a time where you guys would section out four weeks to focus on the mission of God and the message of Jesus so that you can leverage the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are our message, that our messenger is not dead, but that our messenger is alive and ruling and reigning and redeeming all things and bringing them to himself, Lord. God, I pray for us as a church as we seek to break free of some of the spiritual atrophy and some of the spiritual uh, lethargy, God, that you would just break us free to be missional people that that are open-handed with our time and our resources and that we would love people enough to tell them the good news that you are alive and that you love them and that you wish to bring them to yourself. Bless us in this endeavor, God. Pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would grow the missional climate of our church. We cannot do this on our own, God, but you have to do it in our hearts. And God, we pray that you would be faithful to do so, that we might be faithful to you for your glory and for your joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.